Welcome to Grab the Gavel, a podcast from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. The conversations presented aim to show students the human side of judges, their diversity, backgrounds, and common struggles. We hope these insights might inspire students to consider legal careers or even grab the gavel themselves one day as a judge. Now, here's your moderator, Judge Zia Faruqi. Well, thanks so much. I'm so excited to have with me here uh, Judge Ellen Huvel, having been in AUSA in DC as a judge, uh, someone who has before uh, on one opportunity uh, and someone who I know a lot of my colleagues always uh, look forward to because uh, Judge Uvell, you're known to be uh, tough but fair, which I think is uh, all you can really hope for. Uh, certainly when uh, you know, you're coming from the government's perspective, you have the burden. I'm so excited to speak to you now as a, as a colleague. So. Well, thank you, Zia. We overlapped for a very short time before I went inactive, but I'm glad I got to meet you. Well, I'll, uh, I'll start with the, the most important advice that people always ask me, what's the, the best advice you got to be being a judge? I actually got it from you. And you're right, we, we overlapped, I think, only for a few days. I won't take it personally that you left just because I got here, but um, yeah. <laughs> you said, um, the, the last thing you said oh. to the, the judges was that uh, to the parties of the case, there's no such thing as a small case. And that really struck me. Uh, and that's something that I keep telling people and ask me, what's, what's the best advice you receive is actually from you saying that. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, no, no problem. I'm happy to, but I think it's among other pieces of advice, it's worth thinking about anyways. Thanks. Well, yeah. so let's, that's the um, your your most recent move, which was when you retired from the D.C. District Court. Uh, but let's start back at the beginning. So uh, prior to even becoming a lawyer, tell me, you know, we're always wondering where do judges, where do they grow up, where do they come from? Uh, you did not grow up in the D.C. area. So where did you no, grow up? I grew up outside of Boston in Newton, Massachusetts. I uh, I come from a family of I have a sibling, my parents, my father was a lawyer, my brother was a lawyer. So. We had lots of lawyers. My father had a little law firm of about eight people, and they represented unions um, way back when. I went to a public high school with 800 people in my class, so it was not a small high school. They, uh, I went to Wellesley College, and then one would say, well, did you go to law school? And I would have to answer that I resisted going to law school mightily because there were too many lawyers in the family already, and I thought I should do something else. So uh, at the time I was in college, I graduated in 1970, which was a long time ago. I just had a 50th reunion, believe it or not. Of course, it was canceled. But uh, when I did, got to the point of graduation, we didn't have any guidance counselors. We didn't have any career uh, advice. It was just assumed you might do something or you might not. But um, so I decided to go to city planning school, because I had done a lot of work in Boston with redevelopment and various um, projects in the south end of Boston. So I did that for two years at Yale. And at the end of two years, I thought, well, it was pleasant, but I still hadn't really figured out what to do. So I broke down and I went to law school. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's how I got there. But I sort of went thinking I'd never be a lawyer. Yeah, I can only imagine what your uh, Thanksgiving dinners are like with all, all the lawyers there to argue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was your family, uh, were your parents happy? Your dad happy that you decided to go to law at that point, finally? Yeah, I, I'm sure my yes, both of them were. My husband turned out to be a lawyer, too. Yeah, uh, that, I met him before he went to law school. So 
a lot of us sort of went through the same experience. But my father was very supportive in terms of going to law school. I never had any pushback. And, you know, for the students who may be thinking about law school, back then it cost about $3,000. So it was, you know, if you borrowed a little money from the federal government, it was really a much different uh, experience because you didn't have a financial burden when you were looking at the other side and uh, it made it much easier to go and, and pay for yourself and uh, have three three years of learning. Yeah, no, certainly uh, it is daunting now times have changed with the with the cost of law school. Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's really one of the, the hard things you got to sit and think about before you, you decide to make that jump. But I will say my one advice I give to law students, um, which I live my advice is don't marry a lawyer if you can avoid it. But I think you are uh, grandfathered out of that because you both were, you started your relationship prior to law school. So I think that- Why, why do you kosher. advise that? What's, what's, <laughs> what's the basis of your you know, advice? There you go. Now I'm, out, I'm back on the stand in front of Judge Uvell. Uh, oh, I have, I have a, a multiple uh, basis uh, of evidence. One is because um, I wouldn't have been able to marry my wife if I said otherwise. So that's the most important reason. So I'm starting with an outcome-based analysis. But um, I, I think it's always fun to have a little bit of professional diversity. But, you know, there's so much professional diversity between, uh, you know, a, a criminal lawyer and a, a bankruptcy lawyer. You know, you can do so many different things. So uh, it's mostly tongue-in-cheek because I think lawyers okay. argue too much. Okay. <laughs> but um, I, I will... managed. Yeah, it's you okay was going to say, me. you've done all right, yeah. you've done all right. So right. Um, tell me about that. So you went to, you, you, you went then to law school and you, you clerked uh, right out of law school. Is that right? Right. I clerked in Massachusetts for the head of the state court there, the Supreme Judicial Court, which was an appellate court. And I was there for a year before I came to Washington. And then uh, when you were trying to decide, did you think about staying uh, locally in Massachusetts or, you know, what led you to Washington, D.C.? A couple of things I thought a lot about staying in Massachusetts since I basically had spent my life there with some small exception. Um, but the economy was in the mid 70s, especially in Massachusetts in the, uh, uh, the 128 corridor, which was filled with companies like Raytheon, uh, had hit hard times. And so it was not thriving in terms of the jobs. I also thought that the kind of work that was available was fairly constricted and not that interesting. There weren't many people doing, I was sort of interested in criminal law and there weren't too many firms that were doing that. And back then the firms were kind of what we call white shoe firms. They were filled with people who came from the same schools. They were basically white, they were basically male and they basically did commercial work or um, non-criminal and non-litigation. So my husband took a job at a law firm in Washington a year before I went down there. And then I went and I got, um, I applied to a couple of places. I was interested in the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office where you worked and the public defenders, but I must say they didn't hire. You know, they said, well, we might start to consider it in a couple of months, but I didn't want to go to town without a, a jobs. And it turned out I was very lucky. I landed up at a, a well-known criminal defense firm called Williams and Conley. And Edward Bennett Williams was a very famous uh, litigator in town. And he had uh, quite a good, 
a big reputation, I guess is the best way to put it. And my class, they hired six people, three of whom had been clerks on the Supreme Court and me, one other woman and another guy. And we made, um, we were 36 to 42. That's how big the firm was when I joined. So it wow. was, times were changing, just starting to change. Yeah, so, you know, that's so fascinating for, you know, the students who might be listening. Uh, it's hard uh, to keep up with, you know, what firm, uh, you know, I think everyone knows from uh, uh, NPR, at least, that listens to, that the favorite firm of all is Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. But uh, putting that aside, it's hard to keep up with the different law firms that are out there. Um, that one's from Car Talk, in case anyone wants to Google. Yes, but another right. um, yeah. favorite New Englander. Uh, so, but Williams and Connolly, I want the, the the folks who are listening to know, like this is a big deal. Uh, you know, this is a firm that is known for being. You know, they go out there and you know they fight the good fight and they're fighting hard and and to take litigators. And so, Judge Huvel, you know, when you got there, uh, as you said, you had not only a predominantly male. I mean, you can tell us the actual breakdown, but you also had folks who were coming from the Supreme Court, and you were coming from a totally different process. What what was that like? You know, did you feel like an outsider being one of the few women there? Um, one, you have to feel like an outsider. I mean, there, there was one other female there. It was basically, it was all male, mainly a white back then, you know, people coming out of law school, we didn't have anywhere near the diversity. We were just starting to have some women, but I, uh, I was struck. I had a, a young woman, a secretary who had just graduated from high school. When the second woman showed up, they assigned her to share a secretary with me, which I, I wondered about this myself, but she was so despondent. She felt, you know, she started to cry because she thought that she had no status in the law firm working for two females. It was sort of like, how bad can you get? They, uh, um, she adjusted and we all did just fine. But it was a new experience for both the firm and obviously for me. And there were a lot of people I would say almost everybody had worked in a firm before. I had never worked in a firm. I had worked in a uh, town uh, in the southern part of Massachusetts as a public defender in the summer. And uh, so I had no firm experience and I hadn't had quite the uh, sort of fancy credentials that many of my colleagues had. So not only did I feel a little bit out of place, but I had a high degree of insecurity. The, uh, until I sort of got my feet on the ground and figured out what to do. But I would not have been able to figure out what to do without a couple of very helpful mentors, people who are willing to see me make a, you know, make a mistake and correct it and not throw me out the back door as being, you know, hopeless. Nowadays, I think it's harder to be, to make friends and have mentors. And you're often working for people who are in between you and the senior partner. We didn't have that. It was you and one big partner. So the, uh, I learned, but it wasn't without a good deal, for lack of a better word, having a few stomach aches on the way. The, uh, and it's a good lesson that you, you, know, you feel very insecure about your own abilities. But if you, can, if you find people to help you, you gain self-confidence. And the more you do things, you know, the more I went to court, the, uh, the better I felt about going to court. But certainly, I made some bad errors in the beginning. They, uh, I, I'll just give you one example. The first time they sure. sent me out 
to uh, argue a motion in Rockville, Maryland, in state court. I was in this, they had an afternoon of hearings and people were arguing. And I was there in a pretty simple matter about whether there was jurisdiction over the defendant, who was a car dealership, I guess. It was a car accident case. And um, just before the session started, a gentleman walks into the courtroom and the judge stops everything and says, good afternoon, Mr. Webster, and announces that Mr. Webster is a senior partner at my law firm, Williams and Conley. And, you know, and he's here and it's like he was a big cheese out there. And I, you know, I had no idea. I'd never met him before. And they called my case and I got up and they moved my admittance because I didn't, was not a member of the Maryland bar. And then I just spewed my argument. I mean, I had it down. I knew everything you could know. And I had all these cases with me. And later on, that senior partner came to visit me. And he said, gee, that was a very interesting strategy. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you never let the movement, the one that had filed the motion, speak first. And you're not supposed to be the first person to speak. <laughs> but, yeah, and I thought, oh. So you learn. You learn from your mistakes. Well, I think that uh, that is uh, incredibly valuable advice. And, uh, you know, I hope the people listening appreciate um, how much it's, how meaningful it is. You know, it's easy, I would say, for me to say I'm insecure as a new judge um, or kind of figuring things out. But, you know, having been on the other end of your court, it's hard to imagine someone as accomplished as you, as you and as confident as you and the things that, you know, you, the, the mountains you had to climb to hear that you know, you face those same struggles. It's so validating for me to hear that and hopefully for other people to hear is that this is something that we all have to deal with and that we all make mistakes. So uh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, lots of people feel like outsiders, you know, and, and the more you sort of uh, meet other people and get to know the people in the firm, you find that you can actually get over some of that, not completely, never completely, but um, because, you know, I never played golf and people played golf and, and law firms. And so it was just a, uh, um, a somewhat different feeling and to try to attract uh, clients is also difficult, especially in the criminal context, because people, if they're going to pay a lot of money to have a criminal defense, back then the first person to go to was not generally a female. Yeah, so uh, I want to hear a little bit more about that. I know uh, from your experiences at, you know, you went on to become uh, the first uh, female partner at Williams and Connolly. But even before then, you know, with uh, clients or co-counsels uh, or judges, you know, what what was the experience that you saw um, being one of the few women uh, in the room and in these uh, sort of different environments? And what were the challenges that you faced? You know, the challenges came from all sides. There would be clients that would come in to see me and say a senior partner, and they would always ask the senior partner, they direct the comment to the partner, could you have your secretary, that means me, to get me coffee or Xerox this paper? And I developed a uh, attitude on this and I would say, I'm sorry, I'm a lawyer and I don't know how to make coffee. And I never learned to Xerox or make coffee because I didn't want people to, you know, assume that just because I was sitting there and I was a female, I could make make the coffee and I uh, Xerox the paper. And also you said there were judges and some female judges included who wouldn't let you go to court in in pants. You had to wear a skirt. The, uh, and there were certainly judges who would call you, you know, sweetie, 
uh, not particularly uh, helpful or respectful uh, way of discussing things. So it really um, was you had to, you had to learn to roll with the punches. It just didn't. It wouldn't have served my interests to be very abrasive about this. You at that point in time, you sort of swallowed more than you would now, certainly. I mean, when I hear the differences, but if you're one or two of two females at some point, you you don't want to take on um, unnecessary battles, I should say. You pick them where you want, where you can. And so I tried to limit myself to making sure I got on cases I felt comfortable with the case. Um, and that in itself was was a bit of a uh, challenge, but you wanted to make sure that people, uh, and also when you get hired, I think people assume that I wouldn't last, you know, that I would work for a couple of years. And one person said to me, well, I don't know, my wife was a lawyer, she left after a couple of years, and you'll probably do the same, but I'm willing to let you try. So, and I stayed and I did become the first female partner and the first partnership meeting in which I was the only female there and everybody's wearing a blue sports jacket and a tie. They, some person stood up and said, well, now that we have a female here, she can run the dinner dance for the year. Oh, so, the, you know, and anyway, so I ran the dinner dance, but uh, yes. it, it was different, and, and we tried cases in the South. I must say, in Mississippi, I was in Alabama, um, Tennessee. Sorry, we were in Tennessee, and the uh, lawyers just kept referring to you as a, you know, what a great gal. Uh, they wouldn't have said the same thing to a man. No. It's just clear. For sure, not. Yeah, I mean, that's what it becomes. You know, it's always a constant struggle of no, where do you push back? Where do you just? try to ignore it. And it's, it's exhausting, yeah. uh, you know, and it, 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 it persists. I know, you know, even for myself, literally last week, I was getting uh, a monitor from downstairs, as you know, on that main floor where our IT is kind of tucked away. And so I went through the clerk's office with my monitor. And I was carrying it uh, upstairs and someone said, oh, um, wow, it's, that's, you got a new monitor. I said, yes. Um, the person didn't know me. And they said, oh, um, are you taking that up to, to one of the judges chambers? And I said, Yes. Uh, and, you know, I could have said something then, but I just, you just don't yeah, always yeah. want to have to explain yourself. And then she said, well, who are you taking to? Which judge? And I said, myself. Um, you know, the person didn't mean right. bad, but it just, it's those little things every day that, you know, they add right. up sometimes. That's, uh, I think, what they're talking about when they talk about implicit biases. They're assuming that you're not a judge, or they assume that I wasn't a judge or wasn't a lawyer. And, you know, you have to explain, but it's not. It's too many things to worry about to uh, start yelling at everybody. I think That's the true. best thing, the best advice I can give anybody is don't yell at people. You know, you need you need people and they need you. And if people treated each other with respect, we're all going to make mistakes. And sometimes we're going to refer to somebody as something other than what they are, perhaps. But you just hope not to. And, you know, insult or hurt somebody in the process. But it's very important. I, I, if I were ever to advise new judges there, I tell them to be extremely nice to the staff because they work hard and it's not an easy job, you know. The, uh, but there are some people that put on a robe and think they're, you know, the king, so. That's right. Well, uh, you have a new judge here, so I appreciate that advice. I, I want to touch on- You don't on suffer from that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm luckily I have friends like you to remind me uh, that if I do. So um, 
I want to touch upon though on that thread of uh, diversity, why it's so important. You pioneered the battered spouse defense. And I think, you know, it's no coincidence that you finally had a woman who had an opportunity to, uh, to take a case and to uh, really, you know, have an opportunity to bring this new perspective. So um, tell me a little bit about that. I just think it's so amazing. It actually is one of my first cases, and the firm took it on pro bono. The woman had been married to a neurosurgeon. She was a nurse. He worked at Howard Hospital, but he was a member of a Hanafi Muslim sect, and they carried a lot of guns. There was a, a, a center for the Hanafi Muslims on 16th Street, and it was guarded by people with guns. And the husband here, the doctor, had guns everywhere in the house. And a fight broke out in the morning, and uh, he had beaten her before she was pregnant, had a child with her, and the disagreement was whether she shot, you know, he was on the ground and she shot him four times between the eyes or whether he was lunging at her and she grabbed the gun and shot him. But um, it, there was no question she had been battered. Uh, and when she passed the hospital after they came and took him away, she said to the police as they were passing Howard Hospital, Yusuf, that's her husband, will really be mad at me now. The, uh, and it was her processing of the events was most curious, but we had an expert. She was ultimately, we got her a new trial. She was tried again, was convicted. The judge obviously saw the, uh, that this person had a lot, of, a lot of defenses, even if the jury didn't buy it, and gave her a year total that she had already served. And she's gone back to being a nurse in Columbus, Ohio, and I get a Christmas card every year. Very wonderful woman. But the, the story and the case are, appear in a lot of criminal law or uh, women in the law textbooks because it became a famous case on the question of the battered wife syndrome. Yeah. And, you know, again, what would have happened if you hadn't someone who thought about what is it to walk a mile in her shoes? So uh, I think that just why it's so important that we have diversity. I want, I want to pivot now to talk a little bit about, you know, as you had this, you know, became the first female partner, you, you instituted, uh, you know, you were a, a mom at the law firm. I know they didn't have a maternity policy before you there, but as you, you go through all these things, these first, you decide next to, to turn to becoming a judge. So tell me uh, what, what led you to decide, um, you know, you thought you could do that. The, uh, I had, I was there almost 15 years and my children were starting to, the one had to do with my family. I had an eight-year-old son and an 11-year-old daughter about that time. And actually, child-rearing gets more complicated. Have you gotten to this point yet? As they get a little older, you may not have to uh, you know, be there all the time, but there are some I'm key starting moments. to see that. Yeah, I'm yeah. starting to see I have a six and eight-year-old, so I'm starting to see that it's um, the blind obedience. Even um, I'm starting to lose a little bit of that. The, but the other, the other attraction was the, uh, at the time, they were creating more slots in the Superior Court, our local court, for judges because we were going through a serious crack cocaine epidemic, and there were not enough judges to handle all these cases. And the court made a concentrated effort to find people who were not either in the prosecutor's office, public defenders, or the uh, what was then the Corporation Council. So people asked me to apply, and I had about a week to do this. And I always 
you that I'm more comfortable figuring out what's reasonable than deciding what's in the client's best interest necessarily. So I, I was pleased to apply and I was pleased to be chosen. They had a committee in, of local people and they interviewed and sent names to the White House. This is different than a federal judge, what's called an Article One judge. Um, and we're not, we don't go through the Judiciary Committee. We went through a different committee in Congress. Um, and I was uh, picked by George H.W. Bush, who was a Republican, but as a, an aside, there are very few uh, Republicans in the District of Columbia. So he didn't have a lot of choices. He couldn't find many Republicans. So I, I changed jobs in about 1990 and was there almost just shy of 10 years. I sat in civil, criminal, and family courts. We did all three over there. And uh, a lot of street crime, a lot of car cases, you know, car accidents. We tried cases back to back day, you know, day in and day out. It was much, much more of an urban court than federal court is. And it was a good experience. It was a good experience to no longer be in a uh, the stratosphere, so to speak. You know, I was in in touch with everyday problems and everyday people and real life situations. And it's a challenge, and especially if you get involved in neglect cases, juvenile delinquency cases, or family families that are very yeah. dysfunctional. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the. Going back to your advice of, you know, there's no, there's no small cases of the people. What has been the most fulfilling part of the job for me is I feel like I get to make a difference in people's lives. And, you know, you know, it may seem like trivial things to someone on the outside, some legal scholars or something. But to the people in that courtroom, this is this is really, you know, very, very important to have their day in court and have their claim be heard. And it's gratifying to be a part of trying to help people. Yeah, uh, but it's hard, hard deciding yeah. where you're going to put children. You know, yep. those parents are fighting or the parents have problems and can't raise the children properly. And, you know, they've been left alone or you have to decide who's going to go to a, uh, you know, juvenile detention center. It's hard. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, there's, it doesn't seem like there's easy days in the job. But uh, I want to turn then from the, so what's like the state court we kind of talked about for D.C. You then went to uh, the federal court to become a district court judge. And so... Uh, how did that process sort of kick off? It didn't kick off until there was a Democrat in in the White House. And during the uh, Clinton administration, he had the opportunity to fill, uh, actually it's probably nine spots in the federal district court where now you are sitting and where I sat, there's about 15 active full-time judges. There, uh, and there were a fair number of openings. And again, there was a process where you were interviewed by a commission that was set up by our congresswoman. The commission made recommendations to the congresswoman, who then made recommendations to the White House. So the, uh, when I went through that process, I was recommended to the president. And then the president will sit, submit your name to the Senate. The Senate at the time was Republican. The president was Democratic, but by 1998, it, the Senate had become Republican. So it was very important to the administration to find people that might be acceptable and wouldn't cause heartburn to the, it, at the time it was um, the Senator from Utah, Warren Hatch, 
who was the charge was in charge of the Judiciary Committee. So unfortunately, uh, I I made it through this process, and uh, without an active senator in our jurisdiction, it's a little hard to get much political support. So I was tasked by the Justice Department to go out and find some people to help me. <laughs> they said, "Go find go." Go create a positive buzz. I said, what does that mean? You know, and they said just make sure everybody associates your name with positive thinking. So you know, I had to find anybody and everybody who knew anybody that was on the judiciary committee, the, uh, okay. which was not not a lot of fun. But I made it. You know, <laughs> I got through, and, and times were very different. I think it was unanimous. I don't think there was a you know it was a voice vote, and it took a little while, but nothing like what happens now. And so I started, um, I was sworn in probably in February of uh, 99, in 99. Uh, and I started what turned out to be slightly more than a 20 year career on the federal district court in Washington, DC, which turned out to be how you could find a better job. I don't know, but it really is among legal jobs. It's great. I mean, it's intellectually challenging. You meet a lot of people, you learn a lot, all the cases, you know, it's not repetitive. You learn new things pretty much all the time. And I was, I only did civil and criminal. We do not do any family work in the federal court. So um, the uh, it's, it's quite, you do a lot more writing and research and thinking and fewer trials, but you do do trials and often they can take a long time because they're more complicated. I had one trial involving a Somalian pirate, the, uh, which was extremely complicated just to get the people from Somalia to come and testify. I had another trial that involved the people from Rwanda. There was a sort of almost a spinoff from the Hutu and Tutsi genocide that had gone on in Rwanda. A group had killed some Americans. But, uh, so you can get some very interesting, unique kind of cases. But yeah, there's a there's a Tom Hanks movie right about the uh, the the pirate right. Captain Phillips. That's that right. Was, that one occurred about a month or two either before or after the one uh, that I tried. And okay. the one I tried, actually, the Danish public uh, television made a movie of it. They were there on the ground floor from the beginning. Who played they, you? Most importantly, yeah. who played no, you? No, no, no. There was only the uh, drop-off. They, oh. they filmed it from the point of view of the Danish company that had owned the boat and they took a helicopter from somewhere in the middle east with seven million dollars in a canister and so this is all being filmed as the canister with seven million dollars gets dropped into the ocean and picked up by the pirates that's how they got the boat back you know i dare someone to to tell me they have a job that's more interesting when when you get a case like that okay last last question uh and then our lightning round so um we're here at Grab the Gavel. We always want to ask, who can be a judge? What do you think, you know, who is the person who should think about being a judge that's listened to this? I just uh, want to digress for two seconds because I've just been, uh, after I left the bench, I was on the commission that was recommending, and so we interviewed 37 people, and we made some choices uh, and recommended people to the congresswoman. And I have to say that the people who applied were, one, because that, is what the president was looking for. Very diverse, both in terms of their background and who they were, 
We had people, Muslims, uh, such as yourself. We had people from uh, private practice, may, many people, civil rights lawyers, um, public defenders, legal aid lawyers. We had people who came from all kinds of backgrounds and a, a major shift in terms of who has been appointed to judgeships in the past. Uh, you know, in the past, the, Obama made some effort, but now it's open to open up to people who've gone to law school, who've done different kinds of things and done them well. And I was extremely impressed with the vast majority of the people who came through and they were not sort of typical of what had been appointed before. And needless to say, under President Trump, I think that he appointed, you know, 80 uh, percent men and certainly very few people of color. So I think people ought to look at this as a growing opportunity and uh, consider really everybody and anybody who can get through law school, do well and find a job that they can shine at, they're a prime candidate. Okay, and so now I agree. I think anyone can and should be a judge. Uh, at least it's something to dream for. And so lightning round is uh, quick, yes and no answers. We're gonna hit the hard hitting questions here. First, uh, Red Sox or Nationals, which team do you root for? Yeah, I'm a still a Red Sox fan, sorry. Yeah, I, I, I heartily boo that. Uh, number yes, two, uh, <laughs> um, have you ever used your gavel in court? No, never. The, uh, I had a little one, but I never used it. I, people don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and last question, did being a judge help you win arguments with your family full of lawyers? Nope, they never gained any greater respect for me than they did before. So the, uh, even uh, they, I could only win an argument if they came to my office. Well, yeah, fair enough. So. Well, hopefully it's because there, there was no way to increase uh, their yes, respect sir. for you, but it was already at its zenith. Well, thank you so much, Judge Uvel. So uh, appreciative to have you here today. Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you, Zia. It was a pleasure. Take care. You've been listening to Grab the Gavel a podcast series from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. We hope you've enjoyed this segment and learn more about the Rendell Center's mission and work at rendellcenter.org. Thanks for listening.